And I don't know what your previous experience with church has been, um, if you're a guest tonight, whether that's been positive or negative or just kind of neutral. I do know some people have become jaded about church because of their past experiences that were uh, hurtful or disappointing or disillusioning. I understand that. I've had those same experiences in church. But I would say this, regardless of your history with the church, I just want you to know we're grateful that you are here tonight and you've chosen to be in this church with us this evening. As you'd suspect, we're Christians here, which does not mean that we're perfect and we never mess up, but it does mean that we love and follow Jesus Christ, who was perfect, and uh, we believe that Jesus did some amazing things that changed history and... uh, When we entrusted our lives to him, he changed our lives as well, and he continues to do that. He continues to change us. And yes, we do believe that Jesus is alive today, that he is in heaven with his Father, and he's continuing his work in this world through his Holy Spirit and through his church. And since we believe he's alive, we talk to him, and that's called prayer, and we worship him which includes singing songs to him and we try to follow his lead and we seek to spread his truth and his love to our neighbors and throughout our city which we hope will bring flourishing and good to our city well this series of sermons is called skeptics welcome and i don't know if you're a skeptic or not one thing i'm skeptical of and maybe you are too is pastors who are more like celebrities than pastors Around here, we think that elevating any man to celebrity status or putting any human up on a pedestal is a bad idea. And one thing we do here to try and combat that celebrity pastor syndrome is we have a whole team of teachers who bring sermons to this congregation from week to week. And we call that team teaching, and we practice that here. And I'm convinced that it's healthy for a church to hear the Word of God filtered through a variety of different personalities and different experiences, not just one. So if you are a guest today and you do come back next week, then I hope you will. I just want you to know you're likely to hear other teachers speak too, not just me. All right, skeptics, welcome. This series is going to go for three weeks, and in it we're going to attempt to address some of the common questions that skeptics often pose to Christians, questions that if, if they're left unanswered can cast doubt on the legitimacy of Christianity in someone's mind. So that's where we're going. Tonight I hope to get to several of them. If you want to pull out the little study guide, the little study outline in your worship folder, you can track with me. And uh, here, here are the questions we'll try to get to tonight. If God exists and he is powerful and good, then why can Christians say that Jesus is the only way to God and eternal life? Isn't that view narrow-minded and intolerant? So that's where we're going tonight. Pretty ambitious, huh? We'll see if we can get to all of those. So first, this first question I imagine has been on a lot of people's minds lately. If God exists and he is both powerful and and good, then why doesn't he do something to stop all the awful things in our world from happening? That's the question. And the answer is, come back next week. Did that come up earlier? 
For sure, that's a question that a lot of people have asked. It's a classic problem, the, the, the problem of pain and evil in a world that was created by a good God. And we felt this question was so important to address, especially with all that's happened recently in our country, that we decided to devote an entire sermon to it so that the people who ask this question won't feel shortchanged, okay? So I'm not just putting you off. Please do come back next week to hear a more detailed explanation of that very thorny, difficult issue. How about this next one? Why should I trust the Bible to tell me the truth? Why trust the Bible? Answer, because of the cumulative weight of the evidence supporting the Bible as being reliable. As I said, Christians are always talking about the Bible, right? Telling people they should read the Bible and look to the Bible for truth and insight into the big issues of life. But this is a fair question, I think. Is the Bible reliable? Should we trust the Bible and can it stand up to scrutiny? So I want to give you my own argument for why I believe the Bible and why I trust the Bible as my primary source of truth on spiritual matters. And I have an attorney in my family now, and I kind of am wired that way as well. So I'm going to build a case here tonight for the reliability and trustworthiness of the Bible, okay? Here it is. My first point is that the Bible claims to be the true revelation from God. Now, I know, I know that point all by itself is not sufficient to prove the Bible's reliability because other sacred texts make similar claims, but still, I think this is the best place to start. So, I want to be clear. The prophets and the apostles, the human authors who penned the books of the Bible, made very astounding claims about their writing. You need to know that what Moses and Samuel and David wrote down, what Isaiah and Daniel and Jonah wrote down, what Matthew and John and Paul and others wrote down, they believed to be the very words of God. Thus saith the Lord. It's a very common phrase in the Bible. This is the word of the Lord. Over 3,800 times, 3,800 times, the Bible writers refer to what they wrote and what they spoke as the Word of God. That's worth noting, don't you think? They clearly, unashamedly claim divine authority for their message. And that supports the basic contention that we find in 2 Timothy 3.16, which says this, All Scripture, how much Scripture? All Scripture is breathed out by God, breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All Scripture breathed out by God. Even hardened skeptics don't really challenge this point that the Bible claims to be of divine origin. The writers of the Bible believed firmly they were privileged to be hearing and writing down the very words of the living God. That's my first point. My second point is this. The Bible meets the criteria of reliable history. And what I mean by that is this. When you apply the same tests to the Bible 
that historians apply to other ancient texts to determine their reliability and their accuracy, the Bible passes those tests with flying colors. In fact, the Bible gets better grades, testimony, more manuscript evidence supporting what the Bible records than there is for the account of Julius Caesar, Caesar's murder. I know this is technical here, but I, we need to understand this. The Bible is the most well-attested ancient document of them all. So maybe, if you're wired a certain way, you're wondering, well, what are those criteria? What are those tests, those standardized tests that historians use to verify what actually happened in centuries past, since none of us were there? If you've never studied this before, it's fascinating. Here are the tests they apply, okay? Are there any written accounts of what happened? Anybody write anything down? Were those accounts written or authorized by eyewitnesses? Is each account internally consistent, consistent within itself? If there are several accounts, can they reasonably be harmonized? Are they consistent with each other? Were the accounts written fairly soon after the events that they record? Do we have the original autographs? If not, do we have good copies? Is there any external corroboration and support, secondary sources that we can look to? And is there any archaeological evidence to support those accounts? So, if we wanted to verify a historical event, for example, let's just say the existence of a man named Jesus of Nazareth, who reportedly, allegedly lived 2,000 years ago, if we wanted to verify his existence and verify events that reportedly occurred in his life, these are the questions that historians would ask. Are there any written accounts of what happened with regard to Jesus? And we would say what? Yes, the Bible contains such accounts. We know them as the Gospels. We know them as the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of our New Testament, each of them is a written account of the life and times of Jesus Christ, biographies, if you will. Next question, well, were those accounts written or authorized by eyewitnesses? And the answer is yes. Matthew was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He knew him, ate with him, walked with him, lived with him present for all of the events that he records except the birth. Same for John. Mark's account is generally believed to be written through the eyes of Peter, Simon Peter, who was also a disciple of Jesus. And Luke? Well, what we know about Luke is that he was a traveling companion of Paul, and early historians like Eusebius and Clement confirm the popular belief that Luke's gospel was indeed authorized by Paul, and of course Paul was a contemporary of Jesus of Nazareth. He was alive at the same time that Jesus was alive. And they, would, they would ask this, well, is each of those accounts internally consistent and can they reasonably be harmonized with each other? And the answer is yes and yes. I'm not aware of any serious challenges to the internal consistency of each of those gospel accounts. There are a few challenges in harmonizing them with each other, but those can be resolved when we understand that those accounts were written by four different writers for four diff very different audiences, 
from four different vantage points and for four different reasons. Dr. David Beck, an authority on this matter, contends that biblical scholars are in agreement. There are no clear contradictions in the gospel accounts. They can be harmonized when you take their different perspectives into consideration. Then historians would ask this question. Were the accounts written fairly soon after the events that they record? Well, the best research indicates that these gospel accounts were written within 20 or 30 years of the events that they reported on. And that's a length of time that's short enough for easy recall and to be able to interview all the eyewitnesses who would still be alive, get confirmation from them, yet far enough out to get some objectivity. It's like the best stuff on Vietnam and Watergate has come out in recent decades, right? In recent years. After all the sources can be interviewed and all the evidence sifted through and compiled and analyzed. The next question historians would ask is, do we have the original autographs, that, the, the pieces of papyrus that Matthew wrote on and Mark and Luke and John? And the answer is, no. They all disintegrated a long, long time ago. There was no notebook paper back then, no Xerox paper back then. Hadn't been invented yet. The stuff they wrote on would decompose within years if not months so very few original documents from 2000 years ago are still around today so then the question is well do we have good copies and the answer is a resounding yes in fact compared to other ancient writings we have more copies in better condition and earlier copies than any other ancient text for example how many of you had to read the Iliad in high school literature class. Anybody? Homer's Iliad, remember that? He wrote the Iliad in around 900 B.C. But the earliest copies of the Iliad that we have are dated 500 years after he wrote it. Half a millennium after he wrote it. And there are only 643 of those copies around today. By contrast, there are over 5,600 manuscript copies and fragments of the Bible, and some have been dated to within 90 years of the originals. And I don't recall my literature teacher, after making that assignment, standing up and saying, now students, you know, you may not be holding in your hands the actual words that Homer actually wrote, because the manuscript evidence isn't very strong. I don't remember anything like that, do you? She just said, read it! there will be a test. When you apply the same tests to the Bible that you apply to ancient texts, the Bible smokes the competition, always. Ravi Zacharias, a Christian scholar, said this, in real terms, the New Testament is easily the best attested ancient writing in terms of the sheer number of documents, the time span between the events and the document and the variety of documents available to sustain or contradict it, there is nothing in ancient manuscript evidence to match such textual availability and integrity. Then historians would ask, well, is there any external corroboration, any secondary sources? We know the primary sources are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Is there anything outside the Bible? And the answer is yes, yeah. There are several early Jewish sources. How many of you have ever heard of a historian named Josephus? A Jewish historian who lived in the first century. 
And he wrote about a man lived in Israel named Jesus. Very interesting. Another historian of that area was named Tacitus. He was a Roman historian, not a friend of Christianity at all. He also wrote about Jesus. My professor in seminary who's been here, Dr. Gary Habermas, wrote a book called The Historical Jesus, Ancient Evidence for the Life of Christ. And in that book, he's one of the five foremost authorities on this in the world. And in his book, he, de he details all the secular sources outside the Bible that contain references to this man, Jesus. And he shows that you can piece together a sketch, a general account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus from sources outside of the Bible. Did you know that? So yes, there is external corroboration that supports the testimony of the primary sources. And then finally, historians would ask, well, is there any archaeological evidence to support these accounts? Any excavations that have unearthed things, artifacts and things that would support it? A researcher, Dr. J.O. Kinneman, says this, of the hundreds of thousands of artifacts found by the archaeologists, not one has been discovered that contradicts or denies one word, phrase, clause, or sentence of the Bible, but always confirms and verifies it. I wish I had time to get into this because it's very fascinating. I'm going to encourage you to go to a website. I think it's going to come on the screen. Biblicalarchaeology.org and download the free ebook, The Top 10 Biblical Archaeological Discoveries. How many of you like top 10 lists? The top 10 things that have been unearthed in support of the biblical narrative. And in that, I downloaded it and read it. You can read about the discovery of the Nag Hammadi manuscripts in Egypt, the Tel Dan fragment unearthed from a hill in Galilee that talks about a man named King David, a king of Israel. You can read about the excavation of the ancient Capernaum synagogue where Jesus Christ may very well have preached. You can read about the possibility that the very house that the disciple Peter lived in has been found. The discovery of the Pool of Siloam in Jerusalem. If you've read the Bible, you've heard about the Pool of Siloam. That's where Jesus healed the man who had been born blind. They've excavated and found the pool. Those are just a few of the hundreds of discoveries that all confirm and verify the biblical account of history. All this to say, the Bible can be trusted as a reliable historical textbook. So when the Bible speaks of events like a worldwide flood and an ark built by a man named Noah, you can be assured that really happened. When it speaks of the parting of the Red Sea or Jericho's walls coming a tumbling down or a man named Jonah getting swallowed by a big fish or Jesus of Nazareth being crucified on a Roman Cross, you can be sure the Bible is telling us the truth, that those events really happened. The Bible accounts meet the criteria for reliable history. That's the second point in my case. Are you still with me? Okay, most of you are. Here's my third point. Remember, I'm building a case here for the trustworthiness of the Bible. Bible writers clearly reported the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth as historical events. Enough said. You can read about it in the Gospels. My fourth point. 
Bible writers record multiple instances of Jesus claiming that he would be killed and that he would then rise from the dead. And if Christianity is new to you, you need to understand this. This man not only predicted he would die, but he predicted three days later he would come out of the grave. Now, a lot of people have predicted their death. A few people have predicted their resurrection, but only one has done it. Luke 9.22, Jesus said, The Son of Man, that was one of his favorite terms for himself, identifying with us humans. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day, what? Be raised to life. He said that before he died. They're going to kill me, and I'm going to be raised to life. John 10, 17, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Who says stuff like that? Unless you're the son of God and you can pull it off. I mean, that would be an audacious, ridiculous claim unless you can do it. Thus you can deliver. The next point of my argument would be that Bible writers record that Jesus held an extremely high view of the reliability of Scripture. This guy who died and rose from the dead had a high view of Scripture. Listen to some other things people heard Jesus say. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not, an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until everything is accomplished. Matthew 26, 56. All this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then this overarching statement in John 10. Scripture cannot be broken. So there's my case. For me, when it comes to this book, the Bible, I'm going to trust the views and opinions of the guy who predicted he would die and rise from the dead and then did it. That's where I'm at. If the Bible passes all the tests that historians use to validate other ancient writings, and if the risen Jesus said, I believe Scripture is reliable and can't be broken, I'm going to go with that. You're going to have to reach your own conclusion about this, but that's enough evidence to convince me. Like the old children's song says, the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. And that's foundational to the Christian faith, isn't it? That we believe and understand and trust that the Bible is telling us the truth about God, about life, about death, about eternity, about himself, about Jesus, about each other. Big question. Then here's a question I've heard a lot through the years from different people, variations of it. Isn't it enough? Come on, Pastor Steve. Isn't it enough to just try and be a good person? I mean, I'm a good person, I've heard people say. Isn't that enough for God? I mean, isn't it enough? And isn't that the main message of the Bible anyway? So two answers here to the first part. The answer is, it depends. Isn't it enough? It depends. The answer to the second part is, no. <laughs> just to be simple. Let's go to that first part. Isn't it enough to just try and be a good person? Well, it depends. Enough for who? 
Enough for who? Nothing wrong at all in trying your best to be a good person, right? And for most people, that is enough. We all appreciate other people who give their best effort to be kind, to be courteous, to be thoughtful, to be moral, upstanding neighbors and citizens. We'd all agree those are good and noble things to strive for, right? But if someone is asking about what level of human effort or moral goodness is enough for God, to be acceptable to God, well, that's another question altogether. And I've found that the challenge here is that many, many, many people have created in their minds a picture, a mental image of God, and they formed this, this picture of him in their head. And instead of forming their view of God from what's revealed in the Bible, which, as we just saw, is trustworthy, they've concocted their own image of God in their mind, and he's a God that they, that they like and that they can be buddies with and that they can get along with. Through the years, I've talked with some people who seem to think of God kind of like this heavenly grandpa. You know, white-haired old fella, dressed in a plaid flannel shirt and old jeans, kind of getting on in years. He's a bit senile now. Spends most of his time in a comfy old rocking chair, rocking away, smoking cigars, pining away for the good old days when people were more civil to each other. He's kind of out of touch with reality now. You know, the complexities of modern-day life kind of uh, escape him. But they like this God because he's nice and he's not very threatening and it's kind of comforting, really, knowing that old grandpa is watching over them. But it begs the question, is that God? Or do they just concoct that image of God in their head? Other people picture God as a kind of glorified Santa Claus. You know, a jolly old elf with a white beard and a red outfit with a broad face and a little round belly that shakes when he laughs like a bowl full of jelly. Who goes around checking his list twice, seeing who's been naughty and who's been nice and giving gifts to those who haven't been too bad, kind of like a glorified Santa Claus. But is that God? You know, kind of that cute, cuddly little baby. Not a threat to anyone, right? Some picture him as an impersonal force. Many people call him the man upstairs, like the guy who lives in the apartment above you, you know, who plays his music too loud and stomps around at night and bothers you when he moves his furniture, the man upstairs. Some view God as that, skirt, that stern school teacher who's ready to wrap your knuckles with a ruler when you get out of line. Some, many of these days, I think, envision God as kind of this eager bellhop who's always at your service, at your every beck and call, just waiting to meet your every need. Or a clever magician who can do some tricks. Or a jack-in-the-box God that you can kind of keep shut up until you need him, and then you turn the crank and out he pops and he helps you. A.W. Tozer said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I think he's right. So when someone says, isn't it enough to just try and be a good person, 
and they mean, isn't that enough for God? I guess the real question is, God who? Which God? The God who's described in the pages of the Bible or the God that you have created in your own brain? I'm not trying to be antagonistic, but this has to be clarified in order to give a solid answer, right? Which God are you talking about? So let's say the questioner means this. Isn't just trying hard to be a good person enough for the God of the Bible? I hear he's a loving God, and so won't he accept that I usually try my best to be a moral, upright, upstanding citizen who hasn't killed anybody, who pays their taxes, who doesn't lie too much, and is conscientious as a parent? Isn't that enough for the God of the Bible? And the answer that comes ringing back to us from the pages of Scripture is no. No. Shockingly to a lot of people, no. That's not enough. Our own efforts at trying to be a good person are not enough for that God, the real God, not according to the Bible. Not if that's what you're relying on to be accepted by him and make it into heaven. Not if the way you're thinking is that you'll present your resume, your moral resume to God and kind of say, look, this is why I deserve heaven because I've been such a good person. Trying to be a good person. Illustrate this from the Bible. Let's look at an encounter that happened one day in the life of Jesus. It's found in three of the four Gospels. I'm going to choose the one from Mark chapter 10. And it reads like this. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good start, right? Humble. Um, obviously acknowledging Jesus with high regard. Here's what he said. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a good question. Jesus' reply is kind of mystifying. Why do you call me good? Remember the guy had said, good teacher. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. <laughs> you address me as being good. Does that mean you're calling me God? Because only God is good. Jesus wanted to open up that issue because Jesus' identity in his mind was the ball game. He never missed an opportunity to ask people, who do you think that I am? Who do people say that I am? Who do you think that I am? Huge issue. But in addition, by saying only God is good, do you see that? Only God is good. It becomes very apparent that the way Jesus defines good and the way people define good are two very different things. Are you a good person? Most people would say, yeah, I'm a good person. But really, it depends on what we mean by good. If we mean, well, you know, I mean about on par with everybody else that I know, a little better than some, and a whole lot better than fill in the blank. My boss, Hitler, with whom there are some similarities sometimes, Stalin, Saddam Hussein, terrorists, people who open fire on innocent crowd of people, certainly better than those people. By that standard of comparison, you're a good person, and I am too, right? 
But if the standard for goodness is higher, much higher, if the standard for true goodness is actually the character of God himself who is infinitely holy, then no human being should really be considered good according to that standard. Would you agree? Not compared to God, he alone is good by that standard. That's what Jesus said. God alone is good. So I don't know what the man was thinking at that point there on his knees. He's probably going, huh? <laughs> Jesus continued, basically, so you, wanna, you want eternal life, huh? All right, here you go. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery. Do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Now we read that and we go, well, what's this now? This fellow wanted eternal life. Why didn't just Jesus just lead him in a prayer to be saved? It's because Jesus knew this man needed to be brought face to face with the very reason he needed eternal life in the first place. Do these commandments sound familiar to you? They are six of the famous Ten Commandments. This is the second table of the Law of Moses, the commands that have to do with loving your neighbor as yourself. So why was Jesus telling this eager young fella that if he kept these commandments, he could inherit eternal life? Why did Jesus tell him that? Because it's true. People who keep all of God's holy law in thought, word, and deed for their entire lives will go to heaven when they die. They will have earned salvation. And this guy apparently thought that he'd nailed it. What's his response? He hears these commands. He says, teacher, all these I have kept since I was a boy. I'm good. What else you got? In other words, I've been a good person all my life. That should be enough for God, right? Jesus, it says, looked at him and loved him. I love that. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this... The man's face fell. Can you see it? His countenance clouded over. He went away, sad. He left. He got up off his knees and walked away, sad because he had great wealth. So here's a thought to consider. If the performance plan is the plan that you're on when it comes to God, then it becomes very important to understand the depths of what God actually requires of you, what true goodness really entails, the extent to which you're going to need to perform, because a holy God doesn't just require outward behavior that's in compliance with his law, he requires purity on the inside too. Unselfish motives, pure desires, untainted affections, always, every moment of every day, your entire life. People who are on the performance plan, who've chosen that plan as their way to be right with God, need to realize the depths to which God requires holiness. This guy felt that he had kept all of God's commandments to love people, 
And he'd kept them all since he was a kid. But in his, in his heart, Jesus knew he was actually quite a selfish man. And he aimed to expose it in this encounter. Why? Because he hated him? No, what does it say? He loved him. He loved him. He, need, he realized, I've got to help this man see the truth. He's deluded. He thinks he's awesome before God. I've kept them all since I was a kid. Seriously? He wanted to free this guy from the self-delusion of believing that by his own efforts at being good, he could actually earn eternal life. The one thing he lacked, that's the phrase Jesus used, one thing he lacked. What was it? You could say it was obedience to the very first of the Ten Commandments, which is, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. God was saying, I'm it. I, I, I require that I be the supreme love of your heart, the supreme object of your worship. You see, this man had another God. There was something else that he loved and cherished more than the one true God when he had God standing right in front of him. What was it? Money money well he was the only person to ever struggle with that right that feeling of being secure and having it made because I got lots of money I want to hold on to the, my source of security at all costs he just wasn't yet at the place of being ready or willing to forsake his current God in order to have the one true God who demands total loyalty and supreme devotion the god who tolerates no rivals he wasn't ready for that and so he got up off his knees and walked away this wasn't what he had expected from jesus it wasn't what he wanted to hear he wanted to hear you've kept all the commandments you're in this man is a picture of everyone who thinks they in themselves, in their natural state, unredeemed, are good enough for God. Here's the Bible truth. Words straight from the word of God. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who can say, I have kept my heart pure and am clean and without sin? What's the answer? Nobody. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. That's the performance plan. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law. So you know what? Just like this man in this story, all of us need a goodness that surpasses our own goodness. We need a righteous record that is equal to God's own righteous record if we're going to be right with a holy God and dwell with him and in his presence forever. How does one obtain a straight-A moral report card 
when one has not actually earned straight A's? That's a good question, and one that the Bible answers very clearly. We're given a hint, just a hint, in this story of where that comes from. Because it says, after this rich young ruler had gotten up and left, Jesus' disciples, who had heard this whole thing, observed this whole thing, asked each other, who then can be saved? If a perfect record of obedience is what it takes, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them in verse 27 and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. You see, if anybody at all is going to be saved, if anybody at all is going to have eternal life, be forgiven, be declared righteous before God, then God has to do it for him somehow. It's only possible through his effort, not ours. We need him to save us. Thankfully, as I'll get to in the final question, God sent us humans a savior. And through that one, God did all the work necessary in order for people to become acceptable to him. It's just up to us if we'll be humble enough to believe it and to receive it. I'll come back to that in a minute. A few final questions. Aren't all major religions basically the same? Aren't there many ways to God? Answer, no. No. Now, certainly there are some points of similarity in different religions, as in some aspects of social ethics, for example. Like the call to be kind and to be loving and respect other people's properties, those virtues are pretty universal in all religions. But make no mistake, Christianity stands alone in declaring that there is no way that mankind on his own can make himself right with God. Listen, be very clear on this. All other religions promote the concept of human ascent. You know what I mean by that? Human ascent. Imagine someone just walking up a set of stairs. That humanity, by our own efforts, our own self-discipline, our own moral exertion, can climb up the ladder to reach God. All religions except one hold to that. Christianity alone contends that in order for people to be saved, God must come down to us, to our level. Christianity is is not the religion of human ascent. It's the religion of divine descent. It's important to understand. So no, the Christian faith is not just another iteration, just another version of every other world religion. It's categorically different and in some ways nearly the opposite of every other religion. How about this question? How can Christians say that Jesus is the only way to God and eternal life? Isn't that view narrow-minded and intolerant? I guess it would be intolerant if we told people we're going to kill them if they didn't believe that. But true Christians don't do that. True Christians don't do that. How can Christians say Jesus is the only way to God? Answer, Christians believe this because Jesus himself said it. And we trust Jesus, like I said earlier, to tell us the truth. Jesus declared that the path to God is indeed narrow. But he also said that the offer of salvation is extended to all people. 
regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of sexual orientation, regardless of net worth, regardless of skin color, the offer of eternal life and salvation and forgiveness, Jesus said, is offered to all without distinction. That's why we call it the good news. You say, where's all that in the Bible? Thank you for asking. John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is that narrow? Yeah, that's very narrow. And he said this later. He said, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate. And we should not shy away from stating very clearly, he's the only one who rose from the dead. He's the only one who died on the cross for our sins. No one else has done either of those things. And then here's the offer. For God so loved the world, the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's the most famous verse in all the Bible, John 3. 16. Do you see the breadth of the offer? That tells us that the greatest giver of all, God, gave the greatest gift ever given, his son, to come and live and die on a cross in our place. With the greatest offer, whoever believes in him shall not perish in a place called hell, but have eternal life. And all of this comes from the greatest motive ever, for God so, what? Loved the world. And so if you're a skeptical person here tonight, skeptical of Christians and Christianity and church and God and Jesus, and maybe that's because you've been wounded or disappointed or disillusioned in your life, I want you to know something, that God loves you. If you're in the world, God so loved the world. And because he loves you, he made a way for you to be saved, to be forgiven of all your wrongdoings, to have eternal life, to dwell with a holy God in heaven forever, and it's through Jesus, his son, and only through Jesus. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, but there's more to learn, so Mr. Skeptic, <laughs> Mrs. Skeptic here tonight, keep asking, keep seeking, keep exploring, keep searching. There, there's more to learn. There's more to grapple with when it comes to these things, and I really do hope that you will come back next week and learn more about God and more about his often mysterious ways. But I want to thank you for being here tonight. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for not leaving us to just kind of drift aimlessly along and be caught up by every new current of thought. But you gave us something solid, something rock solid, to build our lives on and to build our faith on in the truth of the word of God. Jesus, I thank you that you're alive. I thank you that you spoke truth when you were here on this planet, that it got written down. I thank you for declaring what you thought about the scriptures. Thank you for authorizing your disciples, your apostles, to write the truth of your life and your story after you left that 20 centuries later we can follow it 
and learn how to be right with God. If anybody in this room is not yet saved, forgiven, born again, does not yet possess eternal life, may they take to heart the lesson that we learned tonight from that rich young ruler who was brought face to face with the truth that on his own he wasn't good enough for God, but that God the Son stood right in front of him, ready, willing, and able to grant him eternal life if he would just repent and believe the good news. Thank you for these who've um, come tonight, maybe for the first time. Bless them, Lord. I pray they felt uh, your love here in this room tonight. We pray now you would receive our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.